0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress avoided a government shutdown with a late night spending measure through December 3, but failed to increase the debt limit or pass the National Defense Authorization Act. Meanwhile, Republican lawmakers are scrambling to deliver a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan and their signature $3.5 trillion 10-year legislative package. Senate and House hearings on the Afghanistan pullout The Senate and House both conducted hearings on the Afghanistan pullout, as well as Joint Chief Chairman General Mark Milley's eloquent defense of his interactions with Chinese leaders in the wake of Donald Trump's electoral loss. China is ratcheting up tensions with Japan and the Philippines as North Korea tests new weapons and a new leader takes charge in Tokyo, and what a new government in Germany will mean for European and transatlantic security. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Gordon Adams, uh, American University Professor Emeritus and Quincy Institute Fellow, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who leads the Asia-Pacific Studies Program at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical system Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our weekly Kavis Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello. take a deep dive into naval issues each week. Our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantiere Marinette Marine. And on this week's show, uh, the two are going to be talking about the Navy's uh, retirement of its first Freedom Class Littoral Combat Ship, with more of those ships to be retired over the coming months, and Huntington Ingalls Industries vaccination mandate for all employees. Uh, I should point out that HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Michael, I know you're on a very short lease. You're going to take the top 10 minutes of the program, uh, and then the rest of us are going to talk about it in the aftermath. It's a little bit like sifting through wreckage, um, which (laughs) your job sadly uh, has become over there, given that I don't think you've slept more than a couple of hours uh, for the past couple of weeks, um, just like a lot of the lawmakers up there. Obviously, busy week. Government is going to remain open until December the 3rd. No debt Limit um,
1: increase uh, at this point, no NDAA. Where do we stand on all of this stuff? Okay, so I think uh, NDAA is still a a good news story. Uh, You know, it it did pass the House, as you know, with an overwhelming bipartisan majority. Uh, We're just waiting for the Senate to find floor time to pass their NDAA. And there's hope that there will be floor time in October. Uh, If not, I'm sure it'll be done in early November. I've talked to leaders on the committee, and, you know, the Senate bill has been released, and there really don't seem to be major contentious issues. So when the bill is finally passed, they think the conference will be relatively quick, and there's a lot of optimism that we will have an NDAA you know before the end of this year. Um, appropriations is a little bit of a tougher story. Uh, there are a lot of rumors flying around that the Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee will release their bill uh, within the next two weeks. It's a surprise to a lot of people because the top lines have not been agreed to on any of the defense, uh, any of the bills uh, in the Senate yet. Uh, but the rumor is that the Senate bill will include an extra $25 billion for defense. But there's also rumors that the Republicans are clamoring for more than $25 billion uh, for defense in the Senate bill. Um, that could be uh, to negotiate more with the House, but, but who knows? So we'll see uh, if that rumor is true within the next two weeks. And as you pointed out, uh, we did avert a shutdown, which I knew we would, with several hours to spare. Uh, CR passed both the House and the Senate and, and was signed by the President. Uh, but as you know, uh, the real action and excitement this week has been uh, with infrastructure. Right. So, well, uh, you know, so
0: I was going to say that, right. I mean, we have a tendency of patting ourselves on the back. Oh, my God, the government didn't shut down. Okay, well, you shouldn't have gone. You know, you shouldn't be playing with fire like that under any circumstance. And obviously there's going to be a debt fire that we're dealing with as well. Janet Yellen has said uh, after about October 18, uh, stuff is going to get sporty. This is how we ended up with the BCA. My base case is, is that we end up there somehow, for different set of reasons, and a different set of actors, walk us through where we are on infrastructure and how all of that is going to play out, right? I mean, there's obviously a split, everybody's been talking about it between Democrats and Republicans. I I think that this is you know, they, they haven't done as good of a job selling it to the American people, I think, right? I mean, this isn't 3.5 trillion at once. It's, it's about $350 billion a year. There's stuff that you're already spending that's moving into this, right? I mean, um, we, we can look at the sales element of this uh, elements of this later, but how is this entire infrastructure measure, the $3.5 trillion and the rest of government spending, all of this is tied up and can still become a train wreck? I mean, yes. some would argue it's a bit of a train wreck now.
1: It is, and I've been describing it that way uh, for weeks, you know, as you know. And I think not only hasn't the administration done a good job of selling this uh, to the public, they really haven't done a very good job selling this on Capitol Hill. And I think they've been very disengaged up until yesterday. Uh, Now, there was supposed to be a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package in the House yesterday. And, you know, there's been, as you know, I've been very skeptical as to whether there really would be a vote because the progressives had insisted that There will also be at the same time a vote on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. We all knew that wasn't going to happen. And we all know that in the end, that bill is not going to be $3.5 trillion. Uh, and I think you know, we saw a lot of action uh, this week. You know, earlier in the week, uh, Pelosi was saying she was taking it day by day. Uh, yesterday, it was hour by hour waiting to see would there would there not be a vote. And uh, Joe Manchin made a lot of news uh, yesterday. I think he made it clear he's tired of being uh, thrown under the bus. Uh, first, you know, he came out with a statement earlier this week that uh, calling the Democrats' plan of $3.5 trillion fiscal insanity. And then uh, he produced a document uh, that, for, that he created this summer uh, that he showed to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer outlining Uh, that he would not go above 1.5 trillion. And in that document, outlining the things that he wanted uh, in that bill and the pay-fors that he suggested. And at the end of the document, it said that Senator Manchin does not guarantee he will vote for final reconciliation legislation if it exceeds the conditions outlined in this agreement. Uh, And (coughs) uh, Manchin signed this agreement and so did Schumer. But Schumer's office uh, came out yesterday saying that leader Schumer never agreed to any of the conditions, by signing it, he was just merely acknowledging uh, what Senator Manchin was at the time. Um,
0: I mean, and there are there some- people who, who maintain that it's Manchin, uh, who's the, the guy throwing the entire party under the bus and why one person shouldn't really be. You know, from a conservative state, and, and Kristen Cinema, of course, as well from Arizona, who suddenly went from being a uh, you know far left to the spectrum to, to about as right on the Democratic spectrum mm-hmm. as you can get. Right? I mean, there's a sense that these guys are throwing the rest of their party under the bus. Is the is the flip
1: side of seeing it, of how they look yeah, at it. That- there is a sense of that, but it's, it's just not correct, right? I mean, as I've, I've said uh, almost every week, uh, I've talked to a lot of Democratic senators and Democratic House members who all feel the same way the Manchin does. They're just happy that he's the one who's willing to stick his neck out on this. Uh, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's fantasy land to think that they can come up with a framework uh, or legislation on a $3.5 trillion spending bill and pay for it in the short period of time that they've laid out for themselves. Uh, okay. and, 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 and- Oh, go go ahead. ahead. And I think you know, some of the things that Manchin is laying out are really going to uh, be could either be insurmountable or will inc- delay the amount of time it will take to come to an agreement. You know, for example, you know, he is the chair of the Senate uh, committee Oversees uh, energy policy, and he's a coal state Democrat. And in, he is insisting that he have sole jurisdiction over any clean energy standard, for example, in, in this package. Uh, he also wants assurances that fossil fuel subsidies won't be repealed if tax credits for wind and solar. Are included in the bill, and uh, if there is the expansion of the Medicaid program, he is insisting that it will be dead on arrival if the Hyde Amendment is not included as part of the reconciliation package. And as you know, the Hyde Amendment is what prohibits federal funds from being used to pay uh, for abortions. So you know, there's still a lot of, of hurdles uh, to overcome here. Now, you know, uh, the the um, and, and, and as far as the top line number goes, too, I mean, Bernie Sanders does not want to go below that 3.5. He didn't want to go below six trillion. He was quoted earlier this week saying that you can make an argument that six trillion is too low a number. So, uh, you know, look, it, it, I, I think that, uh, you know, look, Pelosi um, was going hour by hour yesterday. I was at dinner with several members of Congress last night. We we're all sitting around waiting to see if there was going to be a vote at 1045 p.m pretty much when they pulled the plug and said there would be no votes. Pelosi didn't leave the Capitol until midnight. Um, But uh, there is actually a way, she is saying that there will be a vote today when she left the Capitol. And uh, oddly enough, the House remained in session overnight. So even though uh, everybody went home when there were no votes, the fact that the House stayed in session means that for legislative purposes, today is actually Thursday. So if they do vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package today, she would be keeping her promise to have voted on it by, by Thursday. Um, and they're scrambling to try and get a framework in place on the larger reconciliation package to get the uh, progressives on board. Now, the latest framework that's being pitched to Manchin Cinema is $2.1 trillion. I don't think they're going to go for that. And uh, the progressives led by Pramila J. Powell have said that they don't, won't agree to a framework, right? They uh, want, they're demanding a Senate vote on the spending plan, not, to a frame, not, not agreement to a framework. So tensions are very high uh, privately between the moderates and the, um, uh, and the progressives. Uh, and I think we've seen, you know, the, the moderates at least publicly uh, be very optimistic. And, and some of the progressives uh, taking some slaps at them uh, very publicly as well, which, is, which does not help.
0: Let me let me uh, ask. We, we, we've got we've got a tiny amount of time left. I just have to ask, how does all of this potentially end up affecting uh, defense? Right. I mean, this whole there are two ways of looking at this glass half full glass half empty or glass all empty. Right. If you're Bernie Sanders, this is an almost empty glass. If you look at it from the standpoint of moderates, look, we're moving the ball forward on a lot of stuff. Let's just take what we can build on it. Uh, this gives the president a win, uh, whereas there are progressives who are saying, look, this is a fail, and we're just not going to be part of uh, this kind of a fail, right? We, we, we promised a big change. How does all of this affect defense, right? How could the next 24, 48 hours uh, end up affecting defense in your standpoint, from your well, standpoint?
1: Well, I think that you know in the long run, uh, this is it affects defense, because if this reconciliation bill does pass, it's really creating a series of new entitlements, which are going to draw and drain the federal treasury for decades to come. And that will put pressure on defense spending. Uh, so there's a lot of concern here uh, that even though uh, some of these, they, they, they want this bill paid for, will it really be paid for uh, in, into the out years? And will these entitlements grow and continue to create uh, pressure on defense spending? So there, there are some big threats there. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know the debt ceiling still is hanging out there. Uh, And, you know, that's really there is a deadline. There really is no real deadline. These deadlines and infrastructure are self-imposed. But the deadline on the debt ceiling is real. And that's October 18th. And, you know, the House has, you know, again, passed a clean uh, debt ceiling and sent it over to the Senate. Senate will probably take it up on Monday. Uh, If McConnell does not let them get the cloture, uh, then that will fail and uh, they will not be able to raise the debt ceiling right away. Now, what McConnell is saying so the Democrats is use reconciliation to do it. Now, this big reconciliation package clearly is not going to be ready on time uh, for the 18th, but they do have other reconciliation vehicles they can use because remember the Senate parliamentarian said they could amend the budget resolution. But Schumer's concern is that if they do that, it's going to take too long. It could take three to four weeks to get that done uh, because of the way the process works. So this is really a scary game of chicken. I, I've talked to a lot of Republicans to figure out what, what is the end game here. Uh, and no one seems to know, but McConnell does say we are not going to default, so um, I, I think we just got to rubber lucky, lucky rabbit's foot and, and hope for the best. But that's the that's the deadline really, really to watch here. Uh, and I think you know, on infrastructure, like if if Pelosi really does have a vote today, that means she is going to pass it. She's not going to bring this bill to the floor unless she has the numbers. And if she passes the bipartisan infrastructure package today, they should erect the a monument to her on, on, on the mall because she is the most incredible speaker of all time. If she can get everybody in line with only three votes to spare, uh, it will be an, an incredible victory. And I will say this, if she's unable to do it, I don't think the failure is hers. I think the failure really is at the president's feet because he's the one that coupled these two bills together, the bipartisan infrastructure pan plan and his reconciliation package, which it was not meant to be that way early on. I mean, he did lay out Three bold bills as part of his agenda. The American Rescue Plan, which passed earlier this year. The American Jobs Plan, which became the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan. And then the American Families Plan, which has now become the Build Back Better Plan. And all those were separate. And when he tied them together uh, and then tried to walk it back, it was too late. The progressives were not going to let go of that.
0: And very briefly, um, Afghanistan hearings, as well as Mil- Milley's uh, statement, uh, had a Republican friend say that he did a very compelling job in how he explained, certainly, his interactions with Chinese officials. Um, what was your sense, and more importantly, what were members' sense on how those hearings all went and what their, their takeaways were?
1: For the most part, you're right. The, the Republicans felt, I think, uh, for the most part, Milley did a good job. Uh, obviously, they were very uh, happy to hear that Millie said uh, had suggested to the president that they keep. 2,500 troops uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so uh, I think that they, Republicans are, are gleeful, I think, at the tensions between uh, the, the Pentagon, the State Department, uh, and the White House. And this will you know, remain on the front pages and continue to show that there's disarray within the administration. But I think Republicans are trying to figure out what, what, what to make of Millie I mean, earlier this year, they were very anti-Milley because of uh, they felt he was anti-Trump. Now uh, they feel that he's much more of an honest broker. So I think Millie did a very good job.
0: Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Break a leg in the next 24, 48, 72, 96 hours. And uh, look forward to having you back on again next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. Uh, Gordon, uh, I want to bring you into this conversation because you've been in touch with Democratic leaders uh, on this from a progressive uh, perspective, right? I mean, uh, you know, we've we've heard the case, uh, you know, and I'm not necessarily endorsing it. Uh, but that you know, if we can, the nation can spend eight hundred billion dollars a year on defense. Uh, we can spend three hundred fifty billion a year uh, on. Necessary and overdue infrastructure. Uh, supporters of this measure, you know, make the case that we can do this through, t- you know, tax increases. Um, some of the spending in this is already included, and they also make the case that we're wasting money. Right? I mean, the littoral combat ship was a program that was developed over, you know, tens of billions of dollars, and the Navy is retiring them without really getting much mileage out of them, and and sort of moving on to. Um, you know, some say without even learning lessons and, and going to the to the to the next platform. Um, and the challenges you heard also from Michael about how uh, the party maybe has not, and neither has the White House, done a good job in sort of selling this. Um, overall, what are the implications on the defense budget? You know, you, you heard that this could crowd out defense ultimately, given it would be more um, government uh, spending. And this would be a failure that would be laid at the feet of the president, which obviously no president benefits from. Where do you think we're going, and what's the implication on national security ultimately of all of this?
2: Well, first off, let me say that I, I think the phrase that Michael was saying that is the most compelling to me, and I've been saying it for a while, is this is a gigantic game of chicken. Uh, There are a lot of moving parts, but I'm here to predict uh, that, uh, as I did earlier, there would be no closing of the government. Nobody wants to carry that responsibility politically. And frankly, I think whatever the solution is that they're going to find for it by the October 18th, we'll have raised the debt ceiling or at least suspended the debt ceiling for some period of time, probably past a year from now in the elections uh, in November of 22. So I think those are going to be thrown or bandied about in the media a lot because it makes it sound like a crisis on the edge of a cliff. The real cliff is in the Infrastructure and Reconciliation Act discussion that Michael was talking about. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, the, The big question here really, I think, is how the popular support for the reconciliation package that the Democrats are trying to put together with a lot of progressive input. The real question is how you translate immense, overwhelming electoral polling support for the elements in that package, Uh, you know, whether it's a climate change piece, or it's the uh, family medical, uh, family leave piece, or it's the Medicare uh, price negotiations for drugs, uh, or expanding Medicare, something I would personally love to eyeglasses and dental work and uh, hearing aids. Uh, But all, all that's very popularly very supported, but that doesn't manage to get translated into the kind of pressure on the Democratic moderates that the progressives would like to have happen. And I think that's a messaging problem. It's also a structural problem in the way districts are composed in the American Congress. So I don't see that huge popular support being uh, translated into the kind of political impulse that will pull the moderates. So the game of chicken is between the moderates and the progressives and the Democratic Party uh, and for that, I think Michael's right, if Nancy Pelosi pulls off a passage of the infrastructure bill, she deserves a monument. She'll uh, be an incredible piece of leadership on ex- under extraordinarily challenging conditions, right? Uh, the, the, the couple of minor points that I wanted to make in terms of what Michael said is uh, I always take exception to something that's spending being called a drain on the treasury when defense isn't called a drain on the treasury. Everything is a drain on the treasury. Uh, everything has to be paid for either by borrowing or by taxation or fees. That's just the name of the game here. So I don't see the social spending as the drain. Everything that is spent is a drain. And the other um, statement, just minor point that I would make, but Kirsten Senema is slightly miscast as a reputation as a longstanding progressive. When she was in the Arizona State Senate, she was very progressive, but when I met her 15 years ago, when she was a member of the State Senate, We had long conversations and she did a lot of panel discussions, all of which made the touchstone of who she was, the ability to walk across the aisle. She was known and it made a reputation in Arizona for being somebody who, regardless of what her preferences were, could walk across the aisle and get things passed by working with the Republicans. And that's clearly where she puts herself today. So it's not anything terribly new uh, in terms of the way that Kirsten Senema responds. Last question that you raised, Vago, and and it's an important question, but I think not as significant as we think. What are the implications for the defense budget of all of this? Uh, It seems to me defense is a residual here. It's largely fenced inside the gates of the corral. Uh, There is going to be some kind of an add on defense. The question is how much it's going to be. If Republicans push in the Senate for more uh, in order to have negotiations with the House, we're still going to settle somewhere, I would say, between 15 and $25 billion more than what the president requested for defense. So I don't see the implications in the near term. As being significant. I do, however, uh, raise a question about what Michael had to say about the long-term implications and the drain on the treasury thing. There is always going to be a game out in the future, but entitlement spending is in the future going to be dealt with differently from discretionary spending, and that's where the pressure is going to be felt, and that's where we haven't had the argument in the capital yet about discretionary spending packages and whether there ever is going to be another future BCA or some kind of a budget deal that sets ceilings and caps the way we have seen it in the past. We don't know about that yet.
0: uh, Dove, uh your sense on, uh, on this coming from uh, somewhat more of a, you know, GOP uh, perspective uh, in terms of, of what the outlook is and whether or not we avoid a train wreck. I mean, I, I, you know, I, ideally, we compromise. We get to a smaller package. Uh, ultimately, it's about moving the needle forward. We know that the nation has a whole series of challenges, infrastructure being one of them. Um, you know, you, you you know, you don't get something for nothing. You get nothing for nothing. Um, ultimately, where where are we? Where are we going?
3: Well, uh, I tend to be in the same place uh, in many respects as Michael is. Uh, uh, first of all infrastructure isn't just about roads and bridges we know that it goes well beyond that as well and one trillion dollars is still not trivial money even though it seems to be becoming that more and more uh, a number of points uh first biden didn't have a mandate uh to the extent that uh, he may perhaps thinks he has uh, because uh, that he's asking essentially he's already spent a trillion he wants another four and a half and Of course, if you had listened to Sanders, it would be a lot more than that. Um, But uh, a couple of other things though, Uh, there's been this point made, and I think you made it to Michael about, well, you know, three and a half trillion dollars over 10 years is is 350 a year. I've heard this uh, elsewhere. Uh, The the only problem is this is 350 million on top of everything else we're doing in domestic spending. Uh, So to compare it to defense, you really have to compare it to the increase in defense Uh, which, of course, at most is going to be something like, uh, oh, I don't know, in the region of 50 million, if they get the 25 million more. So it'll be a good six to seven times as much. Uh, And so I don't think the comparison holds because that's six to seven times as much year after year after year if you assume defense is going to go up. Uh, And then the question arises, well, should it go up? Uh, the, The administration is taking a very hard line on China. But if you really want to convince the Chinese, you have to do a lot of other things, of course. But one of them does have to be uh, having a strong defense. And so there'll be a push not just to fence it off, as Gordon says, but to to increase it simply to have some credibility, not just against China, of course, which Patrick can talk far more about, uh, but Russia and Iran and, and whatever else pops up as well, because things pop up. Who thought on September 10th, 2001 that? we'd be fighting in Afghanistan for 20 years. Uh, Another concern uh, that I think people have is, frankly, and Michael mentioned this, this should have been three bills, separate bills, not connected. The president brought it on himself. And uh, that, I think, was a mistake because he essentially empowered the progressives. They are not the majority of the Democratic Party. I'm not a Democrat, but, you know, you don't have to be a Democrat to see that the progressives are not the majority of the party, but they are driving the party. And Democrats have to decide whether they whether that is a good thing or not. I mean, uh, Pelosi isn't exactly the, the most right wing Democrat or moderate Democrat there is. But I totally agree with Michael and with Gordon. If she can pull this thing off uh, on the infrastructure bill, which, again, is not just about infrastructure per se, but the most broad definition of infrastructure I've ever heard in my lifetime. Uh, then, yeah, she she certainly deserves a
0: statue on Capitol Hill. Um, I I would like to also point out, right, I mean, the Democratic argument is that this will uh, support growth, we will figure out ways to pay for it. uh, And I always am uh, intrigued by this is that, you know, Republicans have their own orthodoxy, you know, tax cuts are spending. uh, And history has never shown that we actually, you know, increase uh, the amount of money in the Treasury by by cutting taxes, right? So everybody has philosophy here that may not be
3: exactly grounded in reality. There's one thing which isn't philosophy. I mean, there are two things that aren't. First, is the, there seems to have been an agreement, according to Michael uh, and others, that uh, Schumer and, and, and uh, Manchin reached an agreement some time ago. So all this beating up on Manchin for not coming up with numbers is a little bit hokey. Uh, but more important, this is not philosophy. It's how do you pay for this thing? And Gordon knows uh, far better than, than many of us that uh, the White House tends to be very creative about payments. And then what happens is, You're not exactly going to meet your deficit goals and your debts are going to increase and you're going to raise the debt ceiling. And I think that has to be part of this discussion. How is this all going to be paid for if you really want it all?
0: Uh, i i couldn't agree with you more patrick let me bring you into the uh conversation right i mean this has been uh you know as as washington is sort of absorbed with this drama china uh is uh continuing to ratchet up tensions uh, japan said for example uh that um you know taiwan is very very important to to uh japan uh china use some very um you know channeled history you know we're all above being told by tokyo uh what to do and oh by the way taiwan is an internal matter and and you stay out of it if you know what's good for you um the rhetoric against uh, the philippines has been very shrill uh, and increasingly right i mean we've got the whole scarborough reef issue uh ongoing and then of course uh, in the wake of the submarine deal, the the conversation between you know Australia and China has has sharpened. Uh, I think we can say, um, and great piece, uh, Dove. I should point out uh, uh, saying that it's time for France and the UK to be part of the the Quad. Patrick, you and I have you've been on the show and talked about expanding the Quad and how we would thoughtfully uh, do that. I, I mentioned um, something similar to that in terms of of harnessing our uh, European partners uh, more so uh, in Asia. How, how is China characterizing this, right? Because the United States has become sort of the world's number one reality drama. Um, and people look at this and go, holy crap. I mean, they're dancing on the edge of debt default. They can't pass a budget. They, they can't pass any infrastructure measure. I mean, you know how, how is all of this playing in Asia as Asia is looking to Washington? Or have they just become completely used to the fact that it is a soap opera and, and you've just got to watch it till the end? For potentially not, you know, I was going to say a, hap- a, a good ending, but, uh, you know, oftentimes we just sort of barely snatch defeat, snatch non defeat from the jaws of victory. Anyway, you get what I'm saying.
4: Well, Vago, um, of course, it's National Day in China, and the United States, on the other hand, is celebrating a new fiscal year in which we didn't default last night. Um, so, at one hand, uh, China is still doing a better job of creating perceptions within their own country. Um, but the reality in the region, um, and the objective reality, is I believe a shift in strategic balance of power. Um, not only did the Quad and the AUKUS help show that Chinese hegemony is not some fait accompli; there are alternatives. And I've, I have a new essay in the Straits Times this weekend, arguing about Asia's new uh, security architecture. But uh, economically, that's what that's the surprise here. China is showing new cracks uh, in its fiscal sort of an economic uh, uh, juggernaut. Um, Not only have they had power outages this week in Northern uh, China, ironically from uh, the price hike in coal, because by the way, China uh, banned the import of Australian coal to to penalize Australia because they wanted truth telling on COVID sort of uh, origins at the World Health Organization and on that story goes. But now Evergrande, I mean, Evergrande is an immediate problem because it's the world's most indebted real estate developer. They just sold off a bank for $1.5 billion to try to stave off a $300 billion uh, liability bill. Um, and this is the problem. Xi Jinping and his China dream hinge on continued economic growth. If he's going to get that continued economic growth, he's going to have to find a way to move away from what's been fueling economic growth. And what has been fueling economic growth since the 2008 Global financial crisis, half of China's GDP growth has come from real estate. Um, there is no country in the world uh, as dependent on real estate for their GDP. Nearly 30% of China's GDP is related to this. And here's this Evergrande indebted real estate developer on the verge of going under and defaulting. And, and Xi Jinping has two choices for reigning in this runaway coal car. Uh, you know, one of them is he does nothing, he doesn't bail it out, and he moves on to a different model, which is what he's trying to do, uh, and he therefore reins in the excesses of capitalism, or he doesn't do that, um, and he lets the same uh, indebtedness grow even further in China. So this has security implications all over the place, but it, it even had security implications this week when the PLA was engaging in their bilateral coordination policy discussions, Dazdi Michael Chase, great China expert from Iran, who's in that position right now, led those talks for the U.S. The Chinese over two days used lots of language to say, by the way, you Americans, you need to rectify your thinking. You really need you a problematic vision of yourself. I think it's China that has a problematic vision of itself right now. And the region is worried about that because not only Japan and Taiwan and Korea and Southeast Asia and India But really throughout the world, there's growing concern about China's security status. And I can talk more about that. But I think um, one issue that brought this to the fore was was Chairman Milley's testimony about calling China. Um, What struck me was something different in in that the United States was responding to essentially chatter intelligence, yes, but still chatter from Chinese academics who were well placed, saying that. China was very worried about a possible military altercation with the United States in the latter days of the Trump administration. You have to wonder, part of that's true, but part of that is also instructive that China knows how to get our attention. China knows how to uh, get into our decision-making sort of loop. And that's a concern as as well. And yet we still both China and the United States and the region need confidence building measures to to preserve strategic stability. And yet China's making that very difficult to do.
0: Um, I, I want to um, I, I move on to uh, Afghanistan uh, in, in just a moment, and I'm very cognizant of, uh, of the remaining time, but I need to just ask you a quick follow-up on that. Hal Brands and uh, Michael Beckley wrote in Foreign Policy uh, that actually China becomes more uh, dangerous as it becomes weaker. This is a theme that um, I've been focused on for some time, that there is a mismatch, and their miscalculation may be based on the fact that they're actually peaking now and there's a decline. So, the sooner I move and the longer it takes for America to get its stuff sorted out, the more problematic this becomes, right? Every single one of his initiatives has actually backfired, even though it was predicated on the more communist I get, the faster I will grow, which appears to be his philosophy. It's actually the more, you know, and, and then if I'm assertive, it'll be better. All of this is backfiring. It's a failed strategy and it's going to fail even more. Are we entering a far more dangerous period and folks not fully recognizing it? Because I think Hal and and Mike uh, did a great service by putting that out uh, and getting that further into the debate in the the discussion. I mean, I had a strategy conversation with Graham Allison, you know, even though Hal and and, and Michael sort of took to task, um, Dr. Allison's view. Graham agrees that they're potentially getting more dangerous, and that's why it's even more important to have a dialogue with them. Ultimately, do they get? Are they getting more dangerous? Ultimately, from your perspective? Well, Vago,
4: I like to never make assumptions and, and to open up minds rather than to close them down. Even though judgments have to be made on judgments of, uh, of what's happening and what you're assuming. Um, one thing we can say about the Chinese strategy classically, including under Mao, was that they always saw themselves and the PRC sees themselves as encircled. Um, and the, the, the guerrilla strategy was you go on active defense and you and you choose the right moment to go on a counter of, uh, sort of uh, defense. And that's what we don't know. When will China choose that this is the moment that they now have to, for their own defensive purposes, go on the offense? Um, and and it is entirely possible uh, that this argument is correct. Another concerning point we see is that just because China is uh, cracking right now uh, doesn't mean that it's having the intended benefit that we would like, maybe, which would be to make them more moderate and to seek conciliation. For instance, they're blaming climate change uh, emission targets for those power outages, which really had nothing to do with those particular power outages. Um, And that's a problem going forward. Can we uh, still preserve strategic stability if China does not have um, a, a, a clearer perception of its own limitations and the possibilities of cooperation in the future?
0: Um, I should uh, also uh, point out uh, that uh, just just as you uh, pr- predicted, uh, Fumio uh, Kishida um, has uh, become the next prime minister of Japan. So good call on that one, Patrick. Uh, uh, Gordon, let me uh, bring you into this and and you as well, because we've got a couple of minutes left in terms of the Afghanistan uh, testimony and uh, Mark Milley. You know, I think Michael rightly uh, talked about um, how Millie had become a bit of a lightning rod uh, for for both sides, right? First showing up in a uniform in the Lafayette Square, uh, and then uh, for Republicans, obviously for seeming to be disloyal. I think. He did a terrific job, uh, from from my perspective, in sort of uh, talking about the fundamentals of what the role of senior leaders uh, is. And there was a fulsome discussion about Afghanistan and what their advice was. Obviously, putting the administration a little bit on the on the back foot on that. Uh, Gordon, what did you hear from both of those that you think moved the needle? And then and then Dove uh, Dove you? And then I've got um, we're going to go into lightning round because there were two other issues I need to get uh, your guys take on. Go ahead, uh, Gordon.
2: Yeah, I, I followed that pretty closely. The testimony, and I think uh, what was two things were very striking to me. Uh, the first one was that was the term that Austin used, uh, quoting I think somebody else, but nonetheless uh, agreed with it, uh, using the term "strategic failure." Uh, that's pretty amazing to have an acknowledgement of strategic failure right out of the gate, so close to the actual departure of the troops themselves. I certainly don't recall. Uh, the, ever having that kind of clarity about looking backwards from uh, the end of the war in Vietnam. Uh, so that was pretty remarkable. The other thing, though, that struck me was that General Austin, uh, Secretary Austin, sorry, Secretary Austin went through uh, a description of the things that they didn't see coming. And he cited four of them, the corruption rampant throughout the country uh, in, in every sector. Uh, President uh, Ghani's uh, general you know, switching of the leadership of the Afghan military frequently, uh, the deals that were cut with the Taliban and the local commanders that led to the rapid collapse of the Afghani army uh, and the unwillingness of the army itself to fight. Uh, you know, that was, that was very interesting because uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego, in the middle of the hearing, asked Austin, they had a very friendly exchange in which he asked Austin and Millie and Mackenzie, uh, whether it was, uh, whether whether the commanders in Afghanistan were actually listening to the troops, because as somebody who had served there, it was very clear to him and to any of the veterans that he talked to, that the uh, Afghan army was going to fold rather quickly. He didn't know why the military got it. And and the, the brass at the table acknowledged, uh, particularly Millie, that indeed, they uh, had, had to do something about increasing the the flow upwards of information that contradicted what the military brass were saying. All in all, I think it was a very impressive set of uh, testimonies, especially Millie's. The the takeaway for me really is the question of what's the impact here on Joe Biden? What's the impact on the United States in general? I'm among those who don't really think the long-term credibility issue is going to be significant here. I think it will probably wash away pretty well, and it doesn't Threaten US policy towards Ukraine. It doesn't threaten US policy towards Taiwan. I think other countries are quite sophisticated in how they measure it. But the real question here, which is interesting to me, is I think this does the nature of the evacuation itself and the problems that they had. Uh, and we're seeing more since the hearing about state versus DOD in terms of how that went. It's a very interesting debate. But whether that is going to have an impact on the long-term polling for the president himself, on the credibility of the execution of decisions from somebody who had a strong foreign policy rep, uh, reputation, somebody who knew what he was doing, quote unquote, in terms of uh, dealing with foreign countries and dealing right. with issues like this—that's going to be—that's going to be, I think, the sixty-four billion dollar question.
0: Uh, Dove, uh, your sense on you know what did what did you hear that you thought was interesting? Um, And what did you think was B.S. from your standpoint?
3: Well, well, first of all, I I agree with Gordon that the biggest uh, takeaway was the admission that this was a strategic failure. It took the uh, it took us uh, approximately 18 years to say this about Iraq. The Army War College had a study in 2019 that pretty much said that we were floundering for years. Uh, And on Vietnam, as Gordon says, it took seems to have taken forever. Uh, So credit them for that. Uh, Some other things, though, not so much. We really didn't know about corruption. Uh, We've known about that for years and years. Uh, We really didn't have any intel about what the troops were like in Afghanistan, the Afghan troops. Hard to believe. And if there was a focus on happy news, then that has to be one of the biggest lessons learned here. How do you avoid happy news? Otherwise, you get into the Westmoreland trap, which is everything's going fine until it all collapses. I, I also noticed that there was one major inconsistency. We were saying on the, they were saying on the one hand, 2,500 troops could have stayed there. They didn't say they could stay there forever. They, they really were unclear about when they thought they should go other than, yes, they should go, but yes, we needed them. But McKenzie said they needed 5,000 to protect Bagram. How does that square with 2,500 for the whole country? And oh, by the way, if Bagram had been protected with tactical air and the uh, Taliban knew we were getting out, do they honestly, do do, our people honestly think that the Taliban would shoot at people getting out if they just wanted to go to Bagram as opposed to Kabul? Uh, I find that hard to believe. On Gordon's point about uh, uh, credibility, uh, look, a lot of the allies are very uncomfortable. Um, And it's not so much that they'll walk away because of Afghanistan. But if we do some more of these sorts of things, Afghanistan will be part of the mix that gets people to walk away. This isn't the first thing that's gotten people to walk away. The first thing that's gotten people to worry about the United States is Mr. Trump. Afghanistan is building on Trump. And there's a great article by uh, Richard Haas in Foreign Affairs that pretty much says, look, this is something that's been going on for a while. And the, the more issues that come up where our credibility is challenged, it's just going to build on what's already going on. And for me, that's the big worry.
0: Um, we have uh, about four minutes and each one of you get uh, a minute uh, for each of these uh, questions. Patrick, talk to us a little bit about Kishida and what his agenda is going to be uh, now that he's replaced uh, Yoshihide Suga.
4: Ishida has already decided to keep the same foreign minister and probably defense minister. He's going to be a representative of continuity, which means deeper defense cooperation with the United States. Expect a two plus two defense foreign minister meeting in December after the mandatory November elections that are going to be held that will kind of prolong uh, Kishida's longevity here. And they're going to see if they can come up with a joint project beyond the standard missile three block 2A or otherwise deeper uh, operational cooperation between the United States and Japan's militaries and defense technology uh, sort of industries. That's a, that's another important step forward, and it'll happen under the Kishida uh, tenure.
0: And uh, in 10 seconds, are uh, how worrying are North Korea's uh, missile tests, or is that more sort of par for uh, the course, hey, it's time for them to get the attention of the new administration?
4: They've just fired anti-aircraft uh, guns new, that they're testing, but Most importantly, hypersonic missile test uh, is incredible that North Korea has got this capability now, but they're all, this saber rattling is all about, one, building up their programs just as they were going to anyhow, while applying pressure on Moon Jae-in before he becomes a total lame duck at the end of this year in anticipation of the spring elections in South Korea.
0: Uh, Gordon, very tight amount of time. Obviously, uh, Olaf Scholz is uh, going to lead the new government. Uh, Armin Laschet, uh, big loss. Although we'll see which type of coalition, uh, is going to be there. How does uh, transatlantic defense and German defense spending change uh, as a consequence of this election?
2: Well, I rather expect uh Olaf Scholz, who after all was the finance minister in the outgoing coalition. Uh, which may have helped him in fact with his electoral fortunes here. I I, I expect overall that that, uh, Schultz will be able to put together a coalition with the Free Democrats and the Social Democratic Party and the Greens, and it's going to be a relatively solid majority and a relatively solid cabinet. Um, th- what I don't expect is for the Germans to make league with Macron in France in terms of uh, you know greater distance between the Europeans and the building of a European defense capability. Uh, I have I have seen no zero progress on that since the Saint Malo agreement in 1998, and that's a very long time now. Uh, The Europeans are simply not going to distance themselves militarily from the American capabilities in the NATO alliance. So I expect consistency in policy, frankly, between uh, with respect to defense. And I don't expect the Germans to spend more on defense. Uh, They didn't particularly under CDU and Merkel's leadership. It's not going to be a huge change here. So I'm kind of expecting business as usual out of the German elections.
0: And uh, uh, Dove, uh, you get the last word about a minute. Fascinating story about how tensions are rising uh, between uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Iran, uh, troop, uh, Iran uh, putting some troops on the border, uh, concern about how Iranian fuel, fuel truck drivers are apparently being shaken down by Azeris as they move fuel into the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, where there was the second uh, war, uh, devastating war um, from Armenia's perspective. Russia now obviously uh, in the area What does this all mean? Because there was always a concern that this conflict could spark something bigger. Obviously, Azerbaijan allied with both Turkey and Israel in that war, uh, which also some found to be somewhat problematic.
3: Well, the Iranians have said that the uh, exercise was really because Azerbaijan is so close to Israel, but that's not really the real reason. Uh, You mentioned the shaking down uh, that remember, Azerbaijan considers Nagorno-Karabakh part of theirs. And so they've been charging customs fees and essentially they've stopped uh, all Iranian trucking uh, on the route that Iran has to Europe. That's a huge problem for Iran because the uh, Taliban in Afghanistan closes off some routes uh, for Iran into Central Asia as well. And and so the Iranians are worried about that. And what what may worry them even more uh, is the fact that Pakistan, Turkey and Azerbaijan Uh, had a joint exercise and of course Pakistan in many ways is one of the big winners in what happened in Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan and and Iran have had really difficult uh, relations over the years so remember Pakistan is Sunni, Iran is Shia now the Azeris are Shia also but there's 20 million of them in Iran and uh, they were all rooting for Azerbaijan in the latest uh, war with Armenia. This all causes real worries in Tehran. And so they can talk about Zionists all they want. But the real problem is, is they have a geopolitical problem. And if they find themselves at odds, not just with uh, little Azerbaijan, but with big Turkey and Pakistan as well, and Afghanistan not being a friendly place, uh, they've
0: got a problem. Uh, and, uh, less than 30 seconds, uh, everybody was sort of, uh, stunned that, uh, Israel's Raphael, uh, maker of the iron dome system didn't win, uh, the U S army competition for an iron dome system. I should say full disclosure, Raphael is sponsoring our AUSA, uh, coverage. Uh, what did you make, uh, of that? Obviously big win for Raytheon and its team, but ultimately what's the message that sends, do you think?
3: Well, I can jump in Especially as
0: people worry about Buy American right in this administration's approach to it.
3: This is not the first ground-based system that we've messed up. Uh, I was in the Pentagon in in the early 80s when we shot down the Roland program because the Europeans had developed the fine missile and then we took it over and completely made a mess of it and finally had to kill it. Uh, The MIADS program, which took place about uh, 15 years later, same story. Uh, And now you've got it again, and we're going to start making modifications to this thing, and then it won't work, and then we'll cancel it. Uh, It's all very nice to buy America, but buy America doesn't necessarily mean you buy foreign and then change it and transform it and then don't buy it at all.
2: Every nation defends its own defense industry. The United States is no exception here, and frankly, the whole fracas over geostrategy on the Chinese deal with the Australian submarines is really a French vigorous defense of its own defense industry. This is probably 70 years old.
0: And I just want to quickly point out, Dove. you know, you have no dog in this fight. Uh, and and Gordon, uh, neither, neither do you. Dove, bring us home in, the, in, in like less than 10 seconds.
3: It's OK to build stuff when you're building it and buying it on your own. But if you're going to buy something that a foreigner makes so much
0: better, just buy it. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more at the end of the day. Um, we, we don't have enough money to do what it is we need to do. We can't afford to be reinventing the wheel. I like Mark Murchambo uh, and I decades ago used to talk about why don't we just do a barter trade and that might be smarter than, than building factories to rebuild uh, the same thing everywhere. Guys, thanks very much. Have a great weekend uh, and looking forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot.